All right. Hey, uh, come on in and go ahead and have a seat if you would. Um, it's a fun place to start, isn't it? How many of you guys recognize that song? Like, hopefully everybody did because that has been all over the place. It's a very, very popular song. And by the way, that's the radio version. So if you ever listen to the, like, the real version, just know that you're going to catch something there that might make you a little uncomfortable. Um, if you haven't heard it, though, that's Pink's song. It's called Perfect in the edited version. Um, but it's a great song, and it's really catchy. And I love, I love the content of it. At least it got me thinking this week about the message of that song. Because what she's doing, Pink is doing, is she's singing about all the wounds and the fears and the insecurities and all the mistakes in her life. And, and what she says is this mess that she calls her silly life. And so she's singing all about all of that junk and how the world is just bent against her and against us and telling us that we're messed up and we're just battling for a sense of worth. And so then her response to that is to try to be a voice in that. And this is the lyric to the song. She says, pretty, pretty please, don't you ever, ever feel like you're less than, less than perfect. Again, clean version of that. So she's just trying to deal with all the brokenness, the, the critiques, the, the, the difficulty of our world, and the message that she has is to really just kind of throw two middle fingers up at the whole thing and say, you are perfect just the way you are. You are perfect just the way you are. So don't ever feel like you're less than perfect. Don't let anybody ever tell you any different. And that sounds really, really good to most of us. In fact, that's why that song is so catchy and so resonant, because we hear that message and we're like, oh, yes, that's, but then something deep down in us just doesn't believe it. We just don't believe it. Because deep down we know no matter how many times we tell ourselves that we're perfect just as we are, the truth is we all know that that's just not true. So what seems like an anthem of empowerment is really bondage because we know, we know that it is just not true. We're not perfect. And so we are in the middle of this series that's called You've Heard It Said. And we're looking at what are the, uh, the assumptions, the misconceptions, the conventional or current wisdom that we quote unquote know to be true but that might actually be holding us back from the life that God has intended for us, that might actually be the exact opposite of what God would invite us into. And this one I know seems like an odd place to start, but just stick with me. Because here's, the, here's, the, here's what we have heard. Here's what we have heard said is that people are basically good. People are basically good. Like, at the very core of who they are, they are just fine. In fact, not only just fine, but at the core of us, like, we're, we're perfect. We're good. There's, I want to believe that there's nothing wrong with me. And so that's the, the message that just gets shouted at us from the culture, and we try really, really hard to believe it. But then we look at my life and all the mistakes and the hurt and all the brokenness, and I realize I am far from perfect. In fact, most days, I I struggled to get to good, if I'm really honest. 
My life is far from perfect, and so am I. And so the lingering question that we have, even though we play this record on repeat over and over again, and you actually hear it in her lyrics, she gets to the end of it, and she's like, why, why, did I, why do I do this all the time? I, I doubt that I'm perfect just the way that I am. And so there's this wrestling match, this tension, even in the lyrics to the song, where she's unsure, even though she's trying to convince herself, and she's trying harder and harder and harder to convince herself that that is in fact true. But it's hard for us because we know at the core of who we are, we are not perfect just the way we are. We know that. But then on the other side, same equation. On the other side, and if you've been in the church world for a long time, you know this to be true, that we have focused almost entirely on the other end of the scale. So when the culture says you're perfect just the way that you are, people are basically good, this is what the church says. No, no, no. Uh-uh. You are sinful. You are radically messed up. There, there is something completely wrong with you, and don't let anybody tell you any different. See, the culture says you're good just the way you are. The church is like, no, human nature is bad. You are bad. You're just a sinner. And that's the message, at least, that gets put out there. And so we consequently, I think in religious circles, we deal with a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, and we don't like that either. So the question is, which one is it? Are, are people basically good? Are we perfect just the way we are? Or are people basically bad? Completely messed up? Sort of stuck between those two poles. Most of the time what we do to try to get out of that conundrum, that tension, is we just change the grading scale, Right? We look at the people around us and we're like, well, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy, Trey. Right? So we change the grading scale and we just go, look, that's, we're going to just live in comparison to the people around us and at least try to find some people that are a little less good than we are so that we feel better about ourselves because comparison is a great place to live, Right? We do that or we focus entirely on self-esteem and trying to tell ourselves that we're perfect just the way we are. We're good. Everything's right. With the world, we tell ourselves that everybody gets a trophy and we want to build ourselves up. And so we just try harder to believe that that's true. And so like last week we talked about, instead of working on the inside, we try to control the outside world. And we, we do that by trying to eliminate all the critics or, or to, to change the standards so that I can get it done. We modify the outside instead of thinking about what's going on on the inside. The problem, the problem with this, and I need you to hear me this morning because this is one of the lessons that we have learned in the last 60 years. We have been telling ourselves for 60 years as a culture that we are okay and perfect just the way we are. We have been shouting it from the rooftops. We have wrote, written books about it. We have seminars about it. We have been whole hog gone into the idea that we are perfect or good just the way we are. And then yet, in 2021, we live in the most anxious and medicated culture in the history of the world. You think there's something going on there, right? And so we've got to wrestle with that because what the culture is telling us, what, what we try to tell ourselves that we're perfect, we're good just the way we are, is not true, and we know it. And yet, for most of us, there's this other side, too. We say, if it, look, if I'm, 
perfect, then why do I feel so messed up all the time? But if I'm evil, if human nature is really that bad, why do I have a sense of transcendence? Why do I feel like my life means something more than just this limited existence here? You catch the tension there? We're caught in the middle of those two things. And here's what I love about the scriptures. Again, because we've heard it said a lot of different things. But here's what I love about the scriptures. They are so honest. They are so honest. And they give us this picture that is not like full on into religion of like you're, you're, you're evil, completely evil, but doesn't swing over to the other side of culture to go, no, you're perfect just the way you are. In fact, it identifies this tension and it goes like, this is normal. You need to understand this tension is normal. Paul says, I don't understand. He's going through this argument for the gospel for Jesus. He goes, like, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But then I hate what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law, all the regulations in religion, that it's good. Because I'm frustrated with myself. As it is, it is no longer I myself that do it, but there's something in me, the sin that's living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. But I have the desire to do what is good. And yet I, I can't carry it out, at least not consistently. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, man, I just keep doing it. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer me who does it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Do you hear the tension in his voice? You might have read this passage before, and it is one of those things, but I, I think it is such a beautiful and universal truth to the human experience that we go, there is a tension, because I want to tell myself that I'm perfect, but I know myself well enough to know that I'm kind of messed up. I think this is, again, why when we talk about the biblical concept of sin and human nature, the biblical concept of sin and human nature, it is so important because it makes sense of this tension. And you saw it all through that passage there. Paul is just going, look, there's something in your nature that is broken, that is broken. It doesn't have to define you, but there's something in your nature that's broken, and see, this is the only way out of that dilemma, is to understand sin and our own nature. And I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, here we go, <laughs> sin again. But just hold on for a second, because I'm not going to talk about the porn habit that you have, or the gossip, or the taxes, or the person that you heard, or the joke that you laughed at that was discolored. We're not talking about that stuff, because the story is so much bigger than your sin than my sin. This is what we have to get our heads around as followers of Jesus. The story is so much bigger. In fact, in the church, uh, especially the church in the South, one of the mistakes that we have made for years is that when we tell the gospel story, where does it start? It starts with my sin. The four spiritual laws, we're like, you are messed up. We tell that to people and we shout it from the rooftops. And what's ironic about that, think about this just for a second, is that the story of the universe, the big meta-narrative that God is trying to tell in, in the history of the world, we are so self-centered to think that actually starts with us, with our mistakes. 
as humble as that might seem on the outside, it actually is radically self-centered. But that, the, thank God that is not the story, at least not the way that the scriptures tell it. Because the story, according to the scriptures, it starts with God. It starts with the creator of the universe. It starts with his love. It starts with his desire to create beauty in the universe. That's where the story starts. See, we, we were created good. This is what it says in Genesis. It says, look, this is God goes through a whole bunch of stuff where God is saying, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it gets to the end of that process. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, over the creatures that move on the ground. And so God created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Here's your mission. Here's your mandate. And he goes on to continue and continues to say, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, and I give you everything you could ever possibly want. Every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. God saw all that it was made and he said, it is very Good, And there were evening and there was morning on the sixth day. The very last movement of God of bringing beauty into the world was to create men and women in his image. And not only does he say that it is good, he says it is very good. It is the pinnacle, the peak. You are the image bearers of God in all of creation. There is something radically glorious about you. See, that's where the story starts. The story starts with a God who loves to create beauty. And he created us as very good in his image, walking with God. We were made for selfless love, for joy, for kindness, for goodness. We were made to live in the image of God, capable of reflecting his heart, his beauty, his character, his creativity. And his joy into the world around us. That's who we are. We have this image of God, this imago Dei, that is still there. God created us to live in harmony with the world around us. As his image bearers. But then something happened. Something went wrong with the experiment. And what went wrong with the experiment was us. Was human moral agency, was choice. Instead of keeping God at the center of the story, we continue to choose, we chose and continue to choose to live with me at the center of the story. That's where things went south. See, there's still these amazing good pieces, the image of God that is still left in us, but nothing ab about us was left untouched by this radical choice for self-centeredness, putting ourselves right at the middle of the story. And so even the good stuff that I do, even the good stuff that you do, is tinged by this self-centeredness. Think about this. Because this is the piece I think we have a hard time getting, at least in our culture, in a culture that has shouted so often how we are perfect. Just listen to the way, this is a guy named Alan Kraft, he put it this way. He goes, okay, 
Take an honest look at yourself just for a second. Try this for a moment. Let's say there's a photograph of a group of people, and you're one of the people. You pick up the picture, a bunch of people in the picture, and the question is, who do you look for first? Maybe even second and third. That's right. You look for yourself. You ask the question, which of us is not a lover of self? If I look at it more deeply, I realize that I spend most of my day thinking about myself. I was focused on accomplishing my agenda. No interruptions, please. In conversations, I was intent on offering my perspective, thinking to myself, please hurry up and finish what you're saying so I can share what I want to say. I felt jealous and angry when a friend was raving about another pastor's speaking ability. I feel... I freely criticize people and then realize to my horror that they are standing outside my office. Has that ever happened to you? In response, I worried more about what they now thought of me than I did about how their hearts felt. That one's meddling, isn't it? I spend a few minutes grumbling about a certain situation and then go back to preparing a sermon in which I specifically address the issue of grumbling, occupational hazard. I haven't even mentioned the defensiveness, the impatience, the drivenness, the greed, the lust that at various times have pulled at my heart today. Folks, this is me. This is us. Sin is not just a little inconvenience that we struggle with periodically, a minor thing in our lives. Sin permeates our beings. Our motives are self-centered. Our agendas are self-centered driven. Our lives are self-absorbed. The truth is, the truth is, we are broken. We're broken. That's the truth. So be encouraged, right? The truth is we are broken. Sociologists call it a self-serving bias. It's what George Carlin, the comedian, once said. He goes, look, here's how you know you're messed up. He goes, everybody that drives faster than you is an absolute moron and maniac, and everybody that drives slower than you is an idiot. Right? That's how we know we're self-centered. It affects everything about us. And we can try hard to get a handle on it. But those efforts, like it's like a well that goes all the way down, a crack that is all the way to the center of who you are and who I are. And we know that to be true. We just do. See, the problem for us in the church is we have, we have a wrong definition of sin. We want to call certain things that we do sin. Like it's just the bad stuff that we do. But sin is so much more than that. And I think, honestly, like a a short-circuited definition of sin has gotten us into a lot of trouble in the culture around us. Just think about the sexuality conversation in our culture right now. One of the things that the church is known for, and this just grieves my heart, the church is known for pointing fingers and establishing fences and boundaries and going, no, you are outside of that boundary. Regardless of what the sexual piece is, regardless of if it's adultery, if it's homosexuality, if it's, if it's whatever it is, we are known in our culture of pointing fingers and telling people that they're out of bounds. And I get it. Like, at some level, things, there, there are guardrails in life that God gives us rules for our flourishing. He goes, look, if you want life to function the way that it was designed to function in every sense, here's what it looks like. 
So that's fair. But on the other hand, we're so used to pointing fingers as a church that, that I think we've taken a posture that is difficult to justify. See, because when I, when I look at myself and I see, like, for instance, the swimsuit issue come out on the shelves, or I get online and, and some thing pops up on Instagram with some half-naked woman, I know part of myself is drawn to that. And the tragedy is that it doesn't honor my wife. See, Jesus said, you've heard it said that adultery is the problem, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But he goes, here's, here's what I have to tell you about that. If you've lusted in your heart, oh. See, the truth is, judgment starts with me. Judgment starts with me. And my sexuality is broken. And so is yours. Everybody in this room, it is part of the human condition, the heart, part of the human experience. It is not just our sexuality. It is our hearts, our greed. It is our lusts after things. It is placing everything about us at the center of the story instead of looking to God and taking our identity and our purpose and our direction from Him. But the beauty of the story is and here's where the corner gets turned. There is freedom in admitting that we are broken. Because we all know it anyway. We already know it anyway. So there's this freedom when we go, oh man, I am messed up. I don't have it all figured out. I like to keep things shiny on the outside. But on the inside, there are some rotten stuff. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, look, the, the really religious people, like they clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside there's all this filth. He goes, look, go take care of the filth on the inside because it's, it's there. And, and this is where we have to get as a people following God. There's something deeply broken in us and it touches everything. There is a depravity, a dark side that is total in the human condition, in the human experience. Paul says, even if you're super religious, you're in the same boat. You still hurt people. You still choose yourself over others. You still take center stage. We are not who we were created to be, and there's a freedom in just admitting that. That's why we practice confession every week, because we go, look, the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the second we start to say that we're above or somebody else is below or we're a little bit cleaner than somebody else, we've just undone something. And so again, like if you just listen to this point, you'd go, oh man, that seems pretty like harsh and hopeless. And I'd say that's part of the story, you know, because we can't fix it ourselves. Even though we try harder, we, we convince ourselves or try to convince ourselves that we're perfect just the way we are. We cannot get there. We, we won't convince ourselves. We just won't. But here's where the story gets good. 
Here's where this being part of a bigger picture, a bigger story is so helpful. Because this is where Paul goes, very next thing he says, So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. And he's like, oh man. I know myself enough to know I am a wretched man. Who can rescue me? Who can rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he turns the corner and goes, thanks be to God. This is the story. This is the story that God steps in and rescues and delivers us from all the brokenness, all the junk, all the mistakes, all the wounds, all the hurt, all the anger, all the lust, every bit of it. In fact, he goes on the very next thing. He goes, look, here's the deal. You need to know. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Nothing is left. Nothing is left. You don't have to own it. You don't have to carry it. You are free because of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Somebody say amen. That is the story that we have inherited, that we walk into, and we call it, theologians call it redemption. It is the beautiful part of the story. Enter Jesus. We were created great, beautiful, good, image bearers of God, and then we fell and we chose our own way and we put ourselves at the center of the story. But Jesus came and he rescues and he redeems us. He takes us from the pit and he brings us to the other parts. He goes, the theologians have said, you are far more sinful than you ever know, but here's the greatest truth. You are far more loved than you ever dared hope. You have a place. You have a family. Your world is broken. God sees your sin, but you know what else he sees? He sees your beauty. He sees the image of God that you were created in. He sees the glory of your life. And so he reaches down and he grabs those of us who want it. And he starts a process with us. It's interesting, that word redemption, that word deliver, that who can deliver me from the life of death, that word literally means to draw someone close. So to be delivered is to be brought close to the heart, to the character, to the nature of God. We are brought Close. We are redeemed. See, Jesus loves me as I am, just as I am, but he also loves me too much to leave me where I am. Jesus loves me just as I am. God loves me just as I am, but he also loves me too much to leave me where I am. And so while we are reached, he reaches down and brings us out. This is the next part of the story, is that he draws us into a greater story of restoration. When he brings us close, he begins a process where we are being made into who we were intended to be. Original glory. That's what awaits us. That's what this story is about. That's why Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses all the more in my weaknesses. Because I recognize that God is drawing me to this place, this beautiful place of restoration of hope. And so the rest of our lives is about being made whole, about being restored to our original glory and our original story. It's where we relearn to walk with God, to live and to love like Jesus. It's where we live close to God in this new identity that was handed down from the beginning, that there is a glory to our lives and a story and an adventure that we were invited to live from this point on. 
we are restored and we are restoried. We are restored. We are made new and whole, and we are being made new and whole. And then we were given a new story, the same story that was written for us before time began. We have been restored, and we have been restoried, and it's so much bigger than us. See, that's the gospel. That's the good news. We can either be too busy, so busy trying to convince ourselves that we're perfect just the way we are, or too busy focusing on how messed up we are. But that misses the whole point of the story that God is telling. It misses the whole point of the story that God is inviting us into. And here's the thing. You are sitting in church, and I know I'm preaching a little bit to the choir here. So you've likely heard some of this, or all of it. But I would make the case that we desperately need to be reminded of this. Over and over and over, we need to be reminded that we're invited to be a people who are rescued, who are brought close to God, and who are being restored. In a world that's just increasingly grasping at straws and trying hard to save itself, getting back on the treadmill over and over and over again, God says, you don't have to do that. See, knowing that rescues us again and again. And not only does it rescue us, but then it shapes the way we live. It begins to shape the way that we live in the world around us with compassion and kindness and grace and humility. It doesn't mean that we abandon our prophetic voice about some of the destructive patterns of sin in our world or in the people that we love or even in our own lives. But it does change how we do it. It radically changes how we do it. There's another song, I'm going to close with this, that captured me this week. Because as much as we have a, a stream in our culture and in the world around us that wants to tell us that we're perfect just the way we are, in reaction to that, there's beginning to be a movement in our culture. And, and I, it grieves me a little bit that the church wasn't the one that really pushed this, but we can be. It's another song by a group called Lovely the Band, and I want you to listen to these words. I want you to listen to these words, because I think deep down it's tapping into something that just as in the human experience we all know and are longing for. Let's go ahead and play that. Life is funny like that. When the dust settles at the end of the day, and we've said all we can, will realize every part of us, even the loving ones, were a little broken. Please, I'm 
what they're singing there? That there's a beauty when we all just go, I like that I'm that you're broken, broken just like me. I was reading the comments on that story, and it was unbelievable how much it resonated so deeply with the people. It was creating a place. It was creating a a movement, a, a, a groundswell where people understood that they were just broken people like everybody else. And I, I just started thinking about that, and I thought, like, what if the church, what if we became a people who boasted about our weakness and just simply came together to be loved? What if in, instead of pointing fingers and trying to convince ourselves that we're perfect, we just got together and we said, man, I'm so glad that you're broken, broken just like me. Let's go, let's go pursue Jesus together. Let's live together in this place to be with other people who Jesus loves, who are broken just like me. This is the thing. What if the church were known as the safest place in the world to be honest? To confess our sins, to be rescued, to be restored. I mean, isn't that what the gospel teaches us? Isn't that what we were created to be? I'm so grateful that we are part of this church because we got our name from this bigger story. We believe that God is on a giant restoration mission and he's invited us to be part. And I'm so glad that I get to be on an elder board with people who are broken just like me. And I'm so glad that I get to show up on a Sunday and be with you guys who are just like me. This is who we are. And the call for us as we go out from here is to take this gospel, this message that, that we are all broken and we are in this together. And oh yeah, we're going to move towards the source of life together. To the one who knows how to restore us and make us whole. Like that's, that's the invitation that we have. That's the beauty of the story that we're caught in. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful for this bigger story. And it catches me off guard sometimes that um, we forget this. But I'm so grateful that I get to be in a room full of people who are broken just like me. Part of a church that understands that we're all in this together, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That you came not to point fingers, Jesus, but to rescue and redeem and restore something that you made originally beautiful. So in our hearts, Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would be a, a shout of praise from lips of people who have been rescued, who believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save even a wretch like me. God, we proclaim you as king this morning. We proclaim you as creator. We also believe that we are your workmanship.
that we are your masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do incredible works that you had planned from before the foundation of the world for us to do. We bask in the fact that we were created in your image and that there is a glory in us that we will not hide from but we'll embrace because we know that there is a God who has invited us in to a bigger story. So Lord, help us to believe that this morning. Help that to be the message that we take out from here. Help us to proclaim your goodness and your glory even as we step into our own. Jesus, we're so in love with you for the beauty of this story. 